Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. The things you learn in teaching and the things you learn in, you know, certainly in being a principal at school around classroom management, around motivating um, people, around understanding what, uh, what gets them excited and what doesn't and what type of incentive systems work and what don't are highly informative. Uh, for, for any further process in your life, certainly business processes, because business is just a school with grown-up people. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 50. That's right. You heard it. Episode 50. Very excited. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ellie Hoffman. Ellie joined Seeking Alpha in 2006 to found the company's breaking news team. He is responsible for creating Seeking Alpha's flagship newsletter, Wall Street Breakfast, which is read by hundreds of thousands of investors daily. Ellie founded and developed Seeking Alpha Breaking News, the best source of short-form stock market news on the web. Before joining Seeking Alpha, Ellie taught Talmudic studies and was the principal of an elementary school in Toronto. In July 2015, Ellie became Seeking Alpha's CEO. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Naftali, it's an honor and congratulations on half a century. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a big number. It's a big number. And I certainly need to unpack that a little bit in my own mind, you know, my own journey to get here. But you had a fascinating journey yourself, Ellie, and I'm really taken by it on so many levels. Number one, uh, you may be aware of this. I'm a former educator myself, and I was a school principal as well before pivoting into what I do. And I reference that often in conversations with my guests and whatnot. Um, But this is a fascinating shift. You know, it's one thing to go from principal to coaching, where you think you're kind of in the same basic space. But you moved to what I think most people would see as being a completely different arena, going from uh, education to the stock market, sharing news and whatnot. So, So explain to me this transition of yours and how you got to where you are today. Hmm. So, I, so I guess teaching to uh, stock markets is not a uh, is not a typical CEO track. Um, I think teaching is an amazing stepping stone to almost any career. Actually, um, you know the things you learn in teaching and the things you learn in you know certainly in being a principal at school around classroom management, around motivating um, people, around understanding what. Uh, what gets them excited and what doesn't and what type of incentive systems work and what don't are highly informative uh, for, for any further process in your life, certainly business processes because business is just a school with grown up people. Um, they need to be motivated. They need to be rewarded. They need to feel that they're gaining something from what they're doing. And you learn so much about that at, at the teaching level where the students are um, in some ways, less complicated. They're, they're still fresher and less political than uh, by the time you encounter them as adults. And you can really learn a ton about human nature for, I think, almost any position. You know, that said, why from teaching to the stock markets? That's a relevant question. Um, you know, for me, I've always been passionate about the stock markets. Um, it's something I remember when, and I'm dating myself here, 
Uh, but you know, when when I was a kid, and the newspaper would come, and the stock, you know, the stock market was still a section in the business section of the newspaper. You could look at the stock quotes, and you could follow along. And I started watching how stocks sort of moved from day to day, and found it fascinating. And you can can you sort of get ahead of that and identify companies that seem to be um, doing great stuff and uh, present an, uh, an investment opportunity for someone to both um, put money into that company, which potentially gives it uh, investment capital at the same time, get rich doing so. And um, so I, I was always very fascinated by that. Um, when I and my family moved to Israel in 2005, so my initial plan was to uh, trade my own account and be self-sufficient. That didn't work out for me. Uh, I was, uh, I was, I found it extremely nerve-wracking. I don't think I was also particularly good at it. The, uh, the the notion of having to produce regular income from your account to support your family was not something that um, ultimately was uh, was something uh, I was going to be able to sustain. And so, you know, after about a year of doing that, I, I was feeling under a lot of stress, started to look for position, and I naturally gravitated toward the financial markets because that was something that had been a hobby for me for many years. It's something that I just studied in depth myself and said, if I'm going to move on, because at that point I was not prepared to go back into teaching. I had spent many years in teaching and felt I wanted a, a different track in my career, decided I was going to look for something in the financial markets and met up with Seeking Alpha, with the, the editor-in-chief at the time, and with David Jackson, who's the founder of Seeking Alpha. And that led to me taking a position, as you say, to, to lead up the breaking news um, emerging product. It was a very new company at the time. I think it was probably something like employee number eight. And um, we're just getting started. It was a very exciting period, and it is always an exciting period to some extent. And that's uh, that sort of, you know, that took me to uh, join Seeking Alpha and to... Uh, exert some of my passion, which was combined passion of stock markets and writing. I was a writer as well. And so it was just like perfect fit. It was a glove for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, never, I never thought about obviously becoming CEO of the company. I didn't join the company in a, with, with any notion of becoming a CEO, but I was very close with David, the founder. And in uh, you know, sort of the early to mid 2015, he was feeling that after 10 years, of running the company, he was he, he didn't want to do it anymore. Um, it was just too stressful and uh, something that he wanted to, you know, find find a different track in his life. Um, him and I discussed that at length. Eventually, came to the decision that I would take over as CEO. We spoke to the board of directors about that. They were supportive of it, and so that led to me becoming CEO in 2015. Um, that itself was also a non orthodox track you know typically ceos might come from a coo position um or or a uh, or a sales position or more readily than a content position i was the i was the editor-in-chief and vp content when i became ceo but i think it's 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 unique to seeking alpha because we're such a content-centric company that actually made a lot of sense in this case and so that that's that was kind of my journey which has now been a four-year journey as being CEO of Seeking Alpha, great honor, and something that I get up excited about every day. Wow, <clears throat> so much to unpack there, and I really do want to go into it, but one thing that you, <clears throat> you may not have spoken to it directly, but I know it's top of mind for me, because one of the things that I encounter from time to time is the question of, well, you were a school leader, what do you know about business leadership? Right? Because anyone who I'm speaking to in the for-profit space wants to know how do my experiences correlate 
between what I, what I know and what I can do and what they do. And I often tell them that to me, leadership is leadership. And I don't mean to be flippant by that, but I mean to say in effect that the concepts of <clears throat> leading other people, you talked about how you um, didn't follow, obviously your path was completely not uh, traditional in terms of number one, one industry to the other, but even within Seeking Alpha, the fact that you rose to the position of CEO um, and the way that you did it is very much unconventional. But clearly you possess leadership qualities that were desirable, whether to David or to others, that ultimately put you to where you are today. And so what is your take on the universal, universality, if there's such a word, or the universal nature, perhaps I should say, of leadership? Do you see it the way that I do, that if you're good at leading others, if you understand vision, if you understand process, if you understand managing people, and you can take the right approach to getting them to optimize and all of that, then it really doesn't matter so much the context in which you operate, or do you generally feel that um, it really does make a difference in having that, let's call it industry-specific or context-specific experience to be able to lead in particular instances or circumstance? Yeah, that is an interesting, interesting question. Um, there's obviously exceptions, right? You know, you have industries and areas where if you if you aren't a highly trained expert in that area, you you, you dare not tread there. So you're not, you're not going to hire somebody that's sort of a great um, autodidact to to lead up your surgery department unless he's also a very highly qualified surgeon. Um, but I think in general, in in business leadership, it's probably um, the, the the speciality is somewhat overrated. Um, I, I, I think speciality itself is, is probably unnecessary as long as the leader, which, you know, the person typically will be is a, is a strong autodidact, meaning that they can learn, they can step in, and you'd expect within a few months, if, if not quicker, for them to have a really solid, under, a solid understanding of the industry they're stepping into, of the dynamics. Um, they have to really know how to get at that learning curve fast, but I think that's a quality that tends to also go in in, in joint with a leadership quality where you don't sort of wait for information to be fed to you, but rather you're, you're out there seeking it constantly. And so to your question, yeah, I think my views are, are aligned with yours. In fact, I don't, I don't frequently get asked the question, but where I ask the question, well, you know, what, what is unique about your past that qualifies you to do what you do? I kind of view it as, as a largely irrelevant question. I'm, when I interview people for jobs, I'm, more interested in the, um, in, in, the, in the person I'm interviewing and what I think they can bring to the job than what their resume says, unless it's a highly technical job, which the, the, the expertise means a ton. Um, and, and so I treat myself the same way. I think that um, you know, what you bring and the, the, the energy level and the focus and the, um, the, the general approach to how are we gonna do something great here, can be translated to many different areas. Yeah, so um, let's, let's, that was a great answer, by the way, and I think that it, it's become more and more the norm. Uh, I've had other guests on the Lead to, Lead to Succeed podcast offer similar responses just as it relates to whether or not um, they find uh, that the priority is the experience or the particular area that a person, you know, the, the, the schooling and whatnot, or like you said, the person you know, bringing, to, bringing together the combination of skills and also a willingness to learn, the ability to collaborate, all these kinds of things that I think really are 
to use an educational term, sorry, I'm just adjusting here for a second, to use an educational term, 21st century learning, because 21st century learning really has application to 21st century workplace, right? We want to be able to produce as educators, but at the same time as uh, leaders in our workplace, people who can adapt, people who can collaborate, people who can bring their best selves forward, if you will, on a daily basis. And they may not know everything today, but they will get there if they're the right people. You know, and if you have that in your stable of individuals who the cadre of, of, of folks who contribute your core team, you're going to grow and you're going to thrive because no matter what it is that you need to know, of course, you need to have content expertise and you're going to align different people to provide that. Sometimes you're going to bring that expertise from without just to inform, engage, and sort of provide direction. But the right people, I think more than anything else, is the critical component in terms of building your team and developing it over time. But I, 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 yeah, did you want to add something? Yeah, um, I, I, I think that's right. You know, I, you know, in thinking about how I interview and what I'm looking for when, when, when hiring for a key position, um, you know, I, I think the, the track record is important, meaning I'm looking for somebody that has two qualities. Number one, they have demonstrated success of track record. I, I, I care very little about these were my responsibilities and a sort of list of things that I was responsible for. I want to know what did you do? What things did you change in your previous company? And I do also look for people who have worked in successful companies because I think that having worked in successful companies gives you a DNA of what success looks like that you can then translate into other areas. And people that have worked in failed companies through no fault of their own um, lack that. And so on balance, I would, um, I would quickly, quicker hire somebody who's come from a really successful company, even perhaps at a slightly more junior level than somebody who's come from a couple failed companies at a higher level, not because I think failure is bad, but they might not yet have learned the scent of success. And I think that's an important quality. Um, and you know, then the other thing that, that I think is really important to note, and, and it's not something that I think a lot of people talk about, there's, I think there's a big difference between people who say they want to win and people who want to win. Everybody say it, says they want to win, but I think most people when they say they want to win and they might not even be aware of this themselves, what they mean is I want to do my job and I want to go home and collect my paycheck and have a comfortable lifestyle. Um, and then there's people who when they say they want to win, they want to win. They're the ones who they will do things that they're managers would never even dream of asking them to do because they're so ridiculous, but they're going to do it on their own. And so it's not simple in the interview process and in identifying who you want to work with to, to figure that out. But I think at least the knowledge of not everybody who says they want to win really knows what they mean they want to win. And so what evidence do I have that this person has an enormous hunger to win and to make a difference? And that's what matters to them much more then, you know, what am I getting from the company? Yeah, <clears throat> I like that a lot. I really like the quote, by the way, the scent of success. I think that was great. I've never heard that before. Um, but I think it's very powerful because it gives you, it, like you said, if you have worked in an environment where success is the norm, there's just a different way of operating. And you see it, by the way, not just in industry, you see it in sports, you see it in other types of organizations. People want to bring others in from winning cultures, from winning environments, because they will bring, not to use the Trump version of win, win, win till you're sick of winning, but the idea that you want to have people who are not going to be content 
to be average. And that kind of speaks to your other point as well, the hunger. You know, I want to be excellent because I know what excellent looks like and I know what it feels like and I want to be part of that and I want to drive that. And that, that I think really can make very powerful people on your team and that's really neat. So, so if I may for a second, Ellie, I want to go back to something you talked about in your first response, which ties into a question I was thinking about as well. I've been listening to it quite a bit in different books and whatnot, something called the passion hypothesis uh, that has been made popular more recently by Steve Jobs in a famous um, commencement uh, talk about follow your passion. And if you're passionate about something, then you will, typically speaking, get excited about it. You'll put yourself fully into it and you'll succeed with it. And there's a lot of pushback there. As great as Steve Jobs was, not everybody buys into the, you know, the concept of the, of the passion hypothesis and some talk about other ways by which really to drive success. Now, you had a passion with the stock market. You were fascinated by it. I don't know how much actual trading you did prior to your move to Israel, but it sounds like you were involved to, to a meaningful degree to the point where that was your next step that you use your plan to sustain yourself and your family with it. And so on the one hand, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of where passion fits in your mind to anyone who's either starting off in their career or maybe thinking about uh, a career change and they, they're not necessarily super engaged in what they do and they want to do something that's a little bit more passion oriented. What are your thoughts there? And then I have a follow-up question, depending on how you answer it, that I might like to get into as well. Okay, so, so the, the passion principle. Um, I, I think it's, it's somewhat overused and misused. Um, I think that, you know, if you take the, the sort of flip side of it, I think it would be stupid to take a job in something that you dislike or, or feel no affinity toward because then you're just going to be bored out of your mind and you're not going to bring a winning attitude to the job and, and you're not going to end up enjoying your work or doing a good job because those things, those two things go together. Um, but, you know, to sort of take it to an extreme and say, you know, find your passion and follow it. Well, I don't know if my passion is surfing, um, I don't know if I can make a career out of that. You know, I'll, I'll give an example. My my brother um, is an organic farmer, and um, he's very passionate about farming, and you know, has all kinds of stuff going on. He has weekly volunteer groups coming in, but he also figured out that in order to have the lifestyle that he wanted, it was going to be super difficult to do it if all he did was farm. And so he had to sort of extend that passion into areas that were. Um, that sort of rhymed with farming, but weren't exactly farming, such as helping, um, you know, downtown condominiums build rooftop gardens, which he likes less than being in the earth, growing the garlic that he grows. And, and yet, nonetheless, sort of said, this is important to me because I also want to be able to support my family and, and lead a lifestyle that I'm happy with. And so I think you need to be somewhat flexible about that without going completely off the range into an area that you hate, because that would be stupid. Um, but the, the one other thing I would say about that is that I think that there's, there's, a missed, there's a missed opportunity when describing passion, that people take it sort of to, you know, I'm passionate about this niche area. What about the passion about winning, right? If a person doesn't have a passion to win, a person doesn't have a passion to succeed, then it doesn't really matter what he's going to do. Succeeding is not simple. It takes a lot of sweat and guts to succeed in anything that you're going to do, whether it's 
leadership coaching, whether it's being the CEO of a company or whether it's being an awesome customer service representative. If you, if you don't bring that passion of, I want to be truly awesome at what I do, then that itself is a big problem. It doesn't really matter what area you choose, you're kind of going to be mediocre. So let me jump in there because that was fantastic. But specifically, let's go back to the person who's in a job, whatever the reason that they took the job, whether it was smart, stupid, whatever, they thought it was one thing, it became something else. They don't love what they do. But passion is important. Number one, if they want to really feel that they're getting something out of it, you want to bring the passion. Certainly if they want to be promoted or if they want to be um, in position to look elsewhere down the road, all of these things are going, to be are going to benefit from a person bringing their A game on a regular basis. So what advice would you tell someone who doesn't love what they do, but still recognizes, hopefully, the benefits of being passionate and doing their job the very best that they can? Uh Listen, I, I think there's a difference between hating what you do and, 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 and not loving what you do. If you hate what you do, then I think you have to start taking it seriously. How am I going to, at some point in the not so distant future, leave this career for something else? And that might mean going to night school and that might mean blogging and that might mean networking. If you really are unhappy because you just don't like what you do, if you're working in a shoe store and you hate the shoe industry, then you should figure out how, how you're going to get out of that because it'll be destructive to your life. If, if you know, you're sort of, well, I would love to be in the entertainment industry because I find that super exciting, but I don't really think I'm ever going to be there. And so I'm, you know, in the insurance industry and I don't mind it, but I want to bring more passion to my work. How would I suggest, you know, want one go about doing that? Um, I think it's about personal goal setting. I think it's about, um, taking the time to say, you know, why is what I'm doing actually matter? How can I be great at what I do? I want to be appreciated not only at the sort of year end once yearly review, um, where I hope to get a raise from my boss, but, but also on a daily basis by my coworkers, by my, by my customers and clients, etc. What are the type of things that I can aim toward that are going to make me feel more inspired in the work that I'm doing as opposed to feeling like a paper pusher? Nice. Yeah, I think the passion piece is important. And the way that you just kind of broke it down to measure it in different ways is important too. And sometimes you, sometimes you just need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and saying, am I really bringing my, uh, my A game? Am I really you know, doing the best that I can? Because hopefully if you are, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we all would, would hope that um, whatever we do, we do it well. And I think that, yeah, getting the outside reinforcement is important. Setting goals for ourselves is important. Look, being able to look ourselves in the mirror and saying, I did the very best that I can. And if I didn't, where can I improve? And having an honest conversation with someone about that would be fantastic. And if you feel that you can't, for whatever the reason, it's not going to happen, you can't motivate yourself that way, maybe find an accountability partner, maybe find somebody else in the office, you know, that you can kind of critique each other in a positive, supportive way, just to kind of keep the, the, the focus on doing your best because people appreciate that and they recognize it. And ultimately they may find new opportunities for themselves because of that passion that they bring. And whether it's the same industry, same company, totally different new opportunities elsewhere because everybody recognizes the kind of person that they are and that usually will shine through. So let's stay in that space, if I can, for a second on the question relating to, because we talk, you talked earlier on about, it was almost like, you know, the book, everything I learned in life, I learned it in kindergarten. 
you know, so it's almost like the, I don't know what the, what the equivalent version would be, but every, every great leader needs to start off by teaching. You know, some, some, I have to fix up the, the title here, but the idea that if, if you start as an educator, then you could become typically a great leader because you understand, like you talked about, learning styles and how to manage others and the psychology really of learning right? It's not just here's information. It's a whole way of getting people to engage and to think and to embrace it and to study and review and all these kinds of things. We really have to manage lives. It's not just about sharing content. I used to joke with my students all the time. It would be great, right? If I could take a cable and run it from my mouth into your brain and sort of port in all the information, then we wouldn't need to do all this teaching stuff. But the reality is it doesn't work that way. And therefore, the teacher is critical to making sure that the learning occurs. And obviously, that's true for a, for a leader as well. You are the one who sets the standard. You're the one who dictates what the work is and how to get it done and all of this. Of course, you give people space and all of that. So I want to come back to the question that I think using that and then coming back to what we just said a moment ago, what is your thought about the leader as a coach in the workplace and the role of coaching for leaders to get more out of their people? So that's an interesting question because because I've seen in my own personal experience that that people take um, the notion of not micromanaging their employees to what I believe is an unhealthy extreme. Um, I I don't want to micromanage you and therefore you make all the decisions, you, you, you put out the roadmap and I'll basically let you either sink or swim based on your own merits. And, um, and, and I think there's a lot of merit to not micromanaging. Talented people don't like to be micromanaged. They like to feel empowered. They like to feel that they've got um, clear objectives and goals. But I think there's a, there's a huge management opportunity in both the objectives and goal setting. People don't ne- necessarily um, self-understand how to, st- how to structure their goals in a way that's going to make them the most successful and make the company most successful. And if a manager takes a hands-off approach to goal setting, then it's likely going to lead to friction later in the relationship. Um, I think accountability is important. It's great not to micromanage, but I think people actually, talented people and, and motivated people want to feel accountable. And this you know, takes me back to a story from my teaching days as well, which I've mentally referenced many times since then. You know, I had a student in my school who was more often in the hallways than I would have liked him to have been, being kicked out by his teacher because he was misbehaving. And I was frustrated by it and I would yell at him and I would talk to him and I would cajole him and nothing seemed to make a difference. And one day I took him into my office and said, okay, here's a piece of paper. Um, Every time you're out of class, I'm simply going to write the date, the time and a check. You are out of class. And he burst into tears. Right. And it's, I didn't say, I, I made no indication of what I might even do with that piece of paper. Just the very fact that he could no longer sort of maintain the narrative that no, you're overestimating the amount of time that I'm being sent out of class, that, um, that I'm actually going to have a written record because, you know, I, I wandered the halls enough to see him when he was out of class. Um, it completely changed things for him. And so that, that accountability, I think, is something that managers need to take seriously, need to understand that employees actually want that. They need to understand how are you measuring their contribution and if they understand that, they're much more likely to be successful in contributing. And finally, while I think generally you want to coach people to their strengths rather than to weaknesses, because it's a lot more difficult 
to teach somebody to overcome a weakness than it is to identify their strengths and make sure that they can execute in their strong areas. At the same time, I think there are opportunities where you see somebody that, um, you know, for example, is thinking too operationally and is failing to sort of think strategically and is spending a lot of their time in the gutters and maybe they're at a, you know, a VP level position where you have a, you have a talk or a series of chats with them and you say, I think you're, I think you're taking the wrong approach here. You're spending too much of your time in the on the front lines with your team and what i need from you is more strategic thinking because every every minute that you're spending with your team is in, or or spending executing yourself is, is is a minute that you're not spending getting leverage out of the 17 people on your team understand that when you're thinking about how to build better processes when you're thinking about whether you've got the right kpis and goals for your teams etc um that gets then um, multiplied by the 17 people on your team. That's a really good use of your time. Areas like that, I think sometimes people who are in the trenches need somebody who's above them who can see the forest because they're in the trees to show them the forest and, and give them a fairly poignant description of what that looks like and say, you know, I need more from you. You know, I wish I could spend like another hour just on what you talked about and kind of unpack it more because talk about passion. This is like right in my wheelhouse over here. The idea of coaching and helping people understand both strengths as well as challenges, moving them from being a technician to a leader, someone more of a visionary and providing for their team. So much there and the ideas of goal setting and accountability and that oftentimes, like you said, Ali, we as leaders think that people want to be left alone. And maybe some of us did want to be left alone when we were in the trenches. But the reality is goal setting is critical. Accountability is critical. Doesn't mean you micromanage, but it means that you're above board. You're both on the same page about what needs to happen. And then you create accountability around it. And I talk about this a lot in my talks about delegation and goal setting and some of these other pieces. And it kind of reminded me of Ken Blanchard and the situational leadership. You know, knowing where people are depending on their, you know, their career trajectory and where they you know, sort of uh, exist within their, within their jobs and whatnot, you know, we as leaders need to be, be cognizant of how much guidance and how much support you need right now, and eventually over time, how much space should you be afforded. But even in that other final era, which is the one he actually calls delegation, as opposed to some of the other terms, you still need that person to be able to share what they're working on, you need to be able to give feedback. And even if it's not direct, something as simple as what's on your mind and what else, you know, kind of like unpack the issues. And then as the leader, use the coach approach to help them solve some of their challenges that maybe they can't solve on their own. And maybe they're not going to go to their team because it'll, it'll, it'll feel wrong to go to people beneath them, if you will, or people even to their side. They need somebody else they can confide in. And if, they, if you don't come to them, they may not come to you. But if you approach it and you approach it from a perspective of, of growth and development and support, then in most cases, you're going to help them really take that next step. So that's really right. fantastic stuff. I have one last question for this segment. I wish I had time for more. But I'm very interested in communication because oftentimes we have a lot to share, but we don't know how to express it, uh, whether it's me and my work and sharing it online or sharing it with clients, or I'm sure you have the same challenge sometimes in your own mind and how do I share ideas with my team? So you were in the media for a while before you were in leadership, if you will, and you had the newsletters and whatnot. And I recognize that some of it is just sharing technical information in the same manner day over day. 
but I also am sure that you studied the interaction that people had with your content, what sold and what didn't, if you will, what got clicks and responses and what didn't. How did you, what lessons did you learn, Ellie, from creating content that, that informed you as a leader in terms of your communication style, what to share and how to share it? So I think that, you know, that communication and, and, and even, you know, what you, what you call newsletters continue well beyond the, the point where you're creating traditional newsletters for your clientele. Um, you know, as a leader, you're constantly communicating with your leadership team, with the broader team, with the entire company, sometimes with your entire user base. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of lessons to learn there. Um, first of all, lesson number one um, understand that people don't necessarily parse every word you write. And so don't put too much um, weight on the fact, well, you know, I wrote it. In fact, I wrote it in the last three newsletters or the last three updates. Like, don't you read them? Um, people forget, people gloss. And so if you're entirely reliant on written communication, you're already at a huge deficit. My CMO told me recently, we have a, what he calls an email drip where you know, new subscribers get this sort of onboarding. But he said, you know, here's, here's the, the, the problem with it. Only 30% of them actually read the newsletters and that's being generous because- If that much, right. Them, right? Um, what am I gonna do about the other 70%? I have to find other solutions because not everybody is even reading these communiques. So lesson number one is do not be overly reliant on that because a lot of people don't have the attention span to really internalize it. Um, Before you go on to number two, I will not disclose who it is, but I get constant rebuke somewhere in my house about how I told you already multiple times. And so guilty as charged. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> number two, um, it's really important and it's quite difficult and it's, it's a learned skill. Put yourself in the user or the reader's head. Um, what, what, when you describe things, when you talk about things, it's so easy to be ambiguous. It's so easy to not understand, you know, it, a, a, a simplistic example, you know, the pronoun, right? Wait, you just mentioned three people and then you said he. Did you mean A or B or C? But that's, that's a silly and ridiculous example. But there's much more nuanced examples than that where if you're not reading it through the eyes of your reader or you're not listening to it through the eyes of your listener, then you're probably coming across less clear than you think you are. So that's lesson number two. And, um, and lesson number three, which has probably been for me the hardest lesson because I, I, I think that, um, that genetically I'm a very take it at face value person. Lesson number three is that um, there is a tendency to bias toward conspiracy theories. And therefore, if there's anything in your written or verbal communication that can be in any way misconstrued or even not what was there, but what wasn't there, um, there's an over, there's an above average tendency for people to start imagining things that aren't there. And you really have to think about, okay, what could this thing do? How could people misinterpret this thing that I'm doing in a way that would make them feel uncomfortable and to try your best to get out in front of that because otherwise they will build those theories and then you can spend a lot of time <clears throat> deflecting them and deflating them. Yeah, I, I, I could talk about guilty as charged. I've, I've gone down that path before also. And one of the things I write about in my book, and uh, I, I advise also in conversation, first of all, email, we're, we're, we're shockingly poor at reading 
email and what it really means and understanding nuance and things like that. So oftentimes I will ask somebody, whether it's um, a business partner or somebody else, just to look at an email before I send it out to make sure that I'm not communicating something incorrectly. Is there anything missing here? That type of thing. And helping them, you know, helping me to see how is something going to be perceived by somebody else that I didn't necessarily intend. Um, And that kind of keeps you from going down that rabbit hole a little bit. And I love the other point that you mentioned as well, the idea of getting into somebody else's head, whether it's finding out how they communicate, how they, you know, take in content, whether it's just understanding their perspective. I'm reading a book called Getting More. The last name of the author is Diamond. Uh, He's a um, a professor at Wharton and a business consultant and negotiations consultant. It's fantastic content. But the idea that he talks about always is get into the head of the other person. Where are they coming from? What's their What's their primary want and desire? What's going to constitute a win for them? And if you could understand that and how to help them get there and do so in a way, ideally, that's mutually beneficial. It's, not, it's more than just you know, think win-win and sort of compromise and all of that. You can get everything you want and then some if you're willing to give other people. I think Zig Ziglar used to talk about this a lot. You can get anything in your life that you want so long as you give enough people what they want. I think as leaders, we have to be mindful of not just what's in it for me and what's in it for the company, but what's in it for the individuals that create and constitute the team. And if I can find the right ways to support them and still keep the company moving in the right direction, that ultimately, I think, is the balance we want as leaders. Um, So what a great way to end the segment. And I thank you for that. And now it's time for our rapid fire. We're going to go short and sweet and hopefully just kind of end this one on a high. So quickly, please, without getting, without unpacking it, three action steps a leader should do every day. Three action steps a leader should do every day. Um, Number one, uh, have a clear sense of your agenda for that day. By the time you get to the office, what are the key things you want to accomplish on that day? And they should be strategic, not just tactical. Um, Number two, how are you going to make an impact on your team? What are you going to do today? that's gonna leave your team in a better position than they were the day before. Um, Thing number three, how are you uh, going to leave the office feeling uh, inspired and excited about the next day? Interesting, and I see like one and three is sort of like a loop there because you leave inspired, you already probably know what your agenda is for the next day and then you come in and then you actualize it. I don't know exactly what your agenda is, but you should already be leaving like not, okay, tomorrow's another day, let's forget it. fly by the seat of my pants, that idea. Yeah, and and I think, and you you took it right into the office and that's great, and of course, certainly, we could even think about this from a a personal space of whether it's self-care, or other things that we need to do just to kind of come in to be present and to be alive and there for everybody. Great stuff. Uh, a quote that you live by or think about often? A quote that I live by or think about often. It doesn't um, have to be verbatim. Okay, give me a second on that one. Uh, or an inspiring be, message. Yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid to be transparent and yourself when, when dealing and communicating with other people. Nice. Okay. The best part, we've talked about Israel, but we really haven't talked about Toronto. Best part about living in that community. In Toronto. Yeah. Toronto had a very, the community that we lived in was very close knit. There was, it, it felt like family um, to the point where if there was a, 
uh, you know, some type of celebration, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, whatnot. It felt like we were all brothers and sisters and cousins, and that was just tremendous and something that honestly I don't have in Israel nearly to the extent that I had in Toronto. I had many other amazing things in Israel, but the tightness of the community there was outstanding. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. I've been there before, and they say it's one of the best places to live in North America. So definitely check it out, but do so in the summertime. Okay. Um, I, t- I like the winter. Do you? Yeah, it's yes. interesting because I, I spent three years in Atlanta where it's super hot and very muggy. And I would often tell people after, this was, by the way, after 12 years in Chicago. So I'd often, I often say to people, I'd rather a Chicago winter than an Atlanta summer. And most people look <laughs> at me like I'm crazy, but, but that's really the I'm case. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, a tip to help rejuvenate when feeling drained. Um, when I'm feeling drained to rejuvenate, I will try and enrich myself with some non-industry reading that, that really sort of inspires me in some way. It could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. I do that for about half an hour and I'm a new person. That's what does it for me. Nice. Okay, so how could people get engaged with you more, learn more about your work, connect with you either in a seeking alpha capacity and more personally, um, bring us in a little bit there. Sure. So, you know, I, I've got a very public presence on Seeking Alpha. You can go to Seeking Alpha, type into the search box, Ellie Hoffman. You'll find my email address. You can direct message me on the website. My email address is easy. It's Ellie at SeekingAlpha.com. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, with spooky spam concerns and that kind of thing. And um, I, I tend to find that, um, you know, I have a fairly strong network of people because over time you meet people, you engage with them. And um, that, that leads, I think, often to thought sharing, to mutually beneficial relationships. Um, so, you know, that's, that's true in a seeking alpha capacity and in a non-seeking alpha capacity. Specifically, I guess, a seeking alpha, if, and I'm sure there are many of your um, listeners who are investors themselves, it's remarkably easy, surprisingly easy to become a seeking alpha contributor, meaning you share your investing ideas with other people. It's something that can get you exposure, thought leadership, money, um, and catalyze your ideas and community critique and, and, and discussion about the types of things that you're investing in. So it's really a remarkable and very easy to execute opportunity. We've got an entire contributor success team who's there to help you, you know, if you're so interested, get on board, share your ideas with other Seeking Alpha users. We've, we publish three to 400 um, everyday investors' ideas every single market day. So there's a lot of engagement happening there, a lot of community discussion. And if that's something that appeals to you, drop me a note and I'll, I'll, I'll put you in touch with the right people. Wonderful. And I will tell you that another benefit of... Uh, emailing Ellie is number one, you get to know him like I did, I think through email initially. And number two, you eventually get him on your podcast, which is exactly how we got to this conversation today. Okay. And lastly, um, with all of the wealth and wisdom um, that you have to share, kindly leave us, please. You've given us much, but I got to ask for one final life lesson, please, to end our show today and, uh, and, and keep us moving in the right direction. So I'll, I'll leave you with a life lesson, and this is totally just firing from the gut. Um, success is, is, is amazing, and winning is amazing, and building great companies is amazing, but don't lose sight of family, because your family is everything. Um, they are your, 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 your lifeblood, um, and make sure you're making time for them. Make sure that you're not becoming so obsessive 
about all the other things that you do that suddenly you find that six months have gone by and you barely know what's happening with your wife, with your kids. Build those relationships, make sure they're steady um, because, because it's, it's, it's going to be what lasts with you for the, uh, for the rest of your life. Awesome. You know, I just created a list for myself. What would constitute an awesome summer for me? And I have a whole slew of things personal and professional. One of them is make more quality time with the kids and the family in general. And uh, just sent off two kids to camp. And I posted about this on LinkedIn the other day, where each of them, I spent one last, whether it was a lunch meal, a breakfast with them one-to-one before getting them on the bus, just as a way of like making that final connection. I'll see them soon enough on visiting day, but it was a way by which to leave us both feeling high. So speaking of feeling high, this was a great conversation, Ellie. I learned a ton. Um, I'm still looking forward Likewise. to becoming um, better connected with you, deepening our relationship, and uh, and really thank you for making the time to spend on Lead to Succeed. And uh, all of Lead to Succeed Nation is uh, has, has you know whoever's listened is has gained a ton. Thank you. We appreciate your wisdom and uh, and and everything you shared. Thanks, Naftali. It's very generous of you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 